0: I have no idea what a tremendous challenge I face this morning following that Sullivan persiflage. <laughs> I bring you greetings from Communion Fellowship Church in Stanton, Virginia, Gordon and I were there last Sunday, wonderful body of believers. Uh, the elders, Bob Robeson, John Morrison, John Hagen, Brian Fitzgerald, and Clay Starrett, send greetings to you. They thank God a lot for this church because this church has fed that church in many ways over the years. We had a wonderful time. The planning committee meeting, I don't know how it could have gone better. I kept my mouth shut most of the time. The uh, But to me, the highlight of that trip really was the time with the church. It's almost as if God used the planning committee meeting as a way to get us there. What a great blessing we had uh, with that congregation. I want to thank Bruce also for filling my role as communion deacon last Sunday and preparing uh, communion for you. What a blessing. Isn't it great to be in this church? What a blessing we have together. You know, this week, for some reason, and I don't understand why these things happen, I could not get the prologue to the Gospel of John off my mind. Those 18 verses just kept running over and over and over again. And when you think about John 1, 1 through 18, that contains some of the most profound thoughts in all of God's Word. Probably the greatest exposition of Christology in all of Scripture. But yesterday, perhaps Friday, it seemed that verse 1 was what was grabbing my attention. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And all that has come into being came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing has come into being that has come into being. In the beginning was the Word. What does that mean? What's the beginning? Have you ever thought about that? What's the beginning? If you believe in the old earth theory, it's millions of years. If you believe in the young earth theory, maybe 7,000 years. If we're talking about the creation of the earth, if that's the beginning, is there some other beginning? Whatever beginning you decide upon, whatever that is, Christ already was. Pre-existing. Pre-existing. Christ already was. And that's, That's beyond our comprehension, isn't it? We're forced to think about eternity. Uh, The Nicene Creed as early Christians wrestle with how do we define this Christ who always was? And because they had decided, well, you cannot be a father without a son and therefore God is father, he must have always had a son. So they said Christ was eternally begotten. What does that mean? And that's one of the problems I think we have when we try as humans to overdefine these things that really are beyond human comprehension, and we come to Scripture with some kind of a paradigm or template already in place. But verse 1 of John requires us to think about eternity. No doubt some of you have encountered the view that's getting rather popular today that hell... Is not forever, and the argument is based upon the three Greek words that are used in the New Testament that, re, that are often translated as everlasting or forever or without end or eternal. First word is idion alpha uh, iota delta iota omega or rather omicron nu idion. That's twice in the New Testament. The other word is uh I don, which is uh I is the first one I don's the second one that's uh one hundred and twenty eight times and Ionion, which occurs seventy one times in the New Testament, and all of these three words sometimes are translated age, sometimes they're translated forever, sometimes they're translated everlasting. The context would determine how one translates it. But it's interesting to notice that in various passages, for instance, in Matthew 25, 42, the very same word is used to describe how long we Christians will spend with God in heaven. The very same word is used to describe how long sinners will spend their time in hell. If we believe in everlasting life for those who are redeemed, we have to believe in everlasting hell for those who are damned. But this morning we don't want to spend our time in a word study. I feel that what God would have us do today is to talk about the importance of thinking eternally. Have you ever thought about eternity? When I was a child, sometimes I would lay in bed at night and try to picture living forever and Something always happened, a panic attack took place. It was as if there was a great surge of electricity going into some kind of an appliance and blowing it up. My brain just couldn't handle the thought of, I'm going to go on and on and on and on. Because as humans, our mind always thinks of something that has an end. To live forever. Have you grasped with that? (laughs) I sure have. And my brain just can't handle it. So I have to quickly think about something else. But think about what that means. Every time a husband and a wife procreates and a child is conceived, a being has been brought into existence that will never cease to exist. What a responsibility in parenting. Barbara miscarried with our first pregnancy. And so a child left her womb and guiltless and innocent and sinless because it had never lived long enough to sin passed out of this world. Seven years ago, the 20th of October, Barbara, guiltless, left this world because she trusted the cross of Jesus. And I have an assumption today, and that assumption is this, that she has met that baby that we never knew. Someday, I'll meet that baby that I never knew as I go to spend eternity with the Lord. What a funny, not a staggering thought to think about. There's a particular cult of gypsies that have an unusual custom When a baby is born, they grieve. When someone dies, they celebrate because the miserable life has come to an end. When I was a young man, I had excellent vision. I could read street signs in the distance that other people were having troubles to see. Because of that, I was a pretty good marksman with a rifle. I always liked to shoot a gun with open sights, and because I could see the target so well and the open sights so well, I was a pretty good marksman. But something happened at about the age of 45. (laughs) About the age of 45, reading my Bible became increasingly difficult, and finally my arms weren't quite long enough. It was a real challenge when preaching because here in the pulpit, here's your Bible, and especially reading the red letter edition, the words of Jesus were really hard to read. So I went to Walmart and bought some reading glasses. And in the pulpit, I'd put on the reading glasses and read the Bible and take them on and then look the congregation in the eye best I could. But there was a rather prosperous family at church who was embarrassed by the fact that their preacher was wearing reading glasses from Walmart. And so they approached me one Sunday and said, you know, we want to buy glasses for you. And they made an arrangement for me to have my eyes tested. I went to Dr. Holder's. We got glasses. It's amazing how some of the congregation aged in one week. I could see wrinkles that I had not seen before. My vision changed because of the lens through which I looked at the world. This morning, I want to talk about a lens, the lens of eternity, and how different life and the world appears to us when we look at the world, when we look at humans, when we look at life, when we look at ourselves through the lens of eternity, rather than through the worldly lens that most people use. Let's think about some of the ways it's different. When viewed through the lens of eternity, life in this world is seen as a journey, as a journey with a destination. Unredeemed man just views life in this world as a focus of everything. This this person likes me, that person doesn't like me, on and on and on and on. But when we view life through the eternal lens, we clearly see that we're on a journey toward a destination now the purpose of life is to glorify God but the goal of life is to reach the finish line often in the New Testament we find life portrayed as a race here's Hebrews 12 1 to 2 therefore since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Let us lay aside the sin that doth so easily beset us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And then that looking unto Jesus who set the example who ran before us. A race with a finish line. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we imperishable in this. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. When we view life through the eternal lens, we see our purpose in life to glorify God. But the goal of life is what waits us at the finish line. And you who were at Ray's birthday may now hear an echo of something we said there. Sometimes when we run The race of life, we run on level ground. And there are times our race takes us to a steep mountain and we claw our way up the mountain. And sometimes it's downhill and we run with the wind whistling in our ears. Sometimes we run in the heat of the day and sometimes the cold of the winter. And sometimes we run in tremendous weariness. But there's a finish line. Think about this. Death is a gift of God to all of us. The end of the race. In Greek mythology, there is a story of a god, a young god. You know there are old gods and young gods? Well, there was a young one. And he fell desperately in love with a human woman. And they were passionately in love with one another and they approached Zeus, the king of the gods, and said, Would you allow us to marry? And Zeus said, Yes. And so he granted the right to marry. And at their marriage he looked at the bride and said, I want to give you some wedding gift. What do you want? She said, My husband is a god and will never die. I am a human. Someday I will die. Would you grant me... Grant me the ability to live forever as my husband will live forever. And Zeus granted her request. But as the years went by, she started to experience arthritis. (laughs) She started to be stooped. (laughs) She started to have aches and pains. And after a while, she suffered so much in this life but could not die. She could not die. Death is a gift of God to those who run the race with Jesus Christ. You know, when somebody dies, or resurrection of the dead, whoop it, you know, I've often wondered, does Lazarus, after Jesus brought, brought forth, brought him forth in the grave, he looked at Jesus and said, why'd you do that? <laughs> Why did I have to come back and go through this a little longer and die all over again? Why did you do that? When we view our life Through the lens of eternity, we see our life as a journey, a journey moving toward the finish line. Praise be to God when we receive at that finish line the very presence of Christ. What a beautiful thing to think about, isn't it? Now, it's God's prerogative to say when that race is over. Some people say, I just can't handle it, and they take their own life. And when you do that, you're taking the place of God. Only God really has the right to say when your race is over, when it's time to cross the finish line. Another aspect of viewing life through eternal lens is this we have a whole different view of our worldly possessions. And as we think of that, we think of the parable of rich man. You remember the parable? Jesus told it, recorded three times, I believe, in Scripture. There was a rich man whose fields were very prosperous, so prosperous that his barns couldn't handle all the produce. And he said, what will I do? I know what I'll do. I'll build bigger barns and store everything in it. And then I'll say to my soul, why are you working so hard? Sit down and take it easy. You have a lot of goods. Jesus said, but in the night that man's soul is required of him, and he went out into eternity, then to whom will all these things belong? You can't take it with you. As you read the following verses, it is clear that Jesus was telling the parable about a man who thought nothing about the poor. He thought nothing about alms. He thought nothing about things of God. It was all focused in this life. And he had to leave it all behind. Our Lord Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth, for moth and rust doth corrupt, and thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt, and thieves do not break through and steal. If we look at life through the eternal lens, we see our possessions in a totally different way. One day a rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, Good Lord, Lord, what one thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, Keep the law. Well, I've kept that all my life. One thing thou lackest. Sell everything you have. Give to the poor and come follow me. And the young man went away sorrowing because he was very rich. Jesus said, It is hard for a rich man to enter heaven as it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And the apostle said, Lord, then who can be saved? And he said, what is impossible with men is not possible with God. In other words, a rich man can't get there. Paul wrote to Timothy, said, those who desire to be rich are taking to themselves temptation and snares and many foolish harmful desires that plunge men into destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Here's the important question. Do you own your possessions, or do your possessions own you? Not everyone in Scripture is told to sell everything, and give to the poor, and follow Jesus. For example, in Philippi, Acts 16, here was Lydia, had a house, probably had servants, but she used her house to the glory of God. In Acts, uh, you read the account of Ananias and Sapphira, Acts 5, uh, Barnabas, Levi, Barnabas was the nickname they gave him, which means son of consolation, because he was such a kind fellow. Levi had a plot of ground, and he sold it, and Gave the money to the church to help the poor. and Isaac and Sapphira evidently wanting the same praise. They sold a piece of ground. And they said, look, we'll tell Peter that it cost such amount of money. He really didn't. We got it for twice that much, but we'll lie. When they came to Peter with a lie, he said, why have you deceived the Holy Spirit? When, when it was in your hand, wasn't, wasn't it yours? You had the right to keep it. You had the right to give it. So we're not all commanded to sell everything we have and give to the poor. But the question is, do you own your possessions or do they own you? Can you watch it fly away without grief? One time Barbara and I were on a trip among the churches four to six weeks of length. Various ones stayed at our house. And one of the stops along the way, by the way, was Stanton, Virginia. <laughs> and a part of what we did while we were there was lead a men's retreat. And a part of the men's retreat was for the men to go through a ropes course. Now, Papa Knopp, Papa Knop and his wife are the ones who started the church. They and their seven sons meeting in their home. and finally grew to be a marvelous church. But Papa Knop. Being an older man, and I accompanying him, not going to say about my age at that time, but we instead of going to the robes course, we sat in a, an old pickup truck, top of the hill, and watched the other guys do all their stuff. Well, i have interesting conversations, and somehow it came to material and possessions, and Papa Nop said this, it's all going to burn. Now that was really helpful to me, because when we got back from that trip, Barb and I had a collection of 25 silver dollars that was given to us on our 25th anniversary. That was gone. I had a gold pocket watch that belonged to my great uncle that I sometimes carried. That was gone. My skill saw was gone. My tap and die set was gone. A ring of Barbara's was gone. All kinds of stuff. My rifle was gone. Now, I could have been upset and become a detective and started trying to figure out where it all went. But I remembered what Papa nop said. It's all going to burn. <laughs> what peace to say, it's just all going to burn. When we look at our possession through eternal lens, we see them far differently than if we look at our possessions through worldly eyes. There was a book of John Wesley's sermons published in 1872, and one of the best knowns is in that collection is Sermon Number 50. And the title of the sermon was The Use of Money, and he had three points in the sermon and he elaborated on them greatly, but the three points were this, gain all you can. Jesus said, make friends with the mammon and so on. Make all the money you can. Number two, save all you can. And then it's interesting, as you read that sermon, he criticizes Christians that are buying the latest fad, the most frivolous clothing, wanting to be real up-to-date. Today he'd probably talk about cell phones or something like that, wouldn't he? <laughs> save all you can. Point three, give all you can. <laughs> so make all you can. Save all you can, Never be a good steward, but then give all you can. And when he died, they said he had, I think, a spoon and a plate, and that was about it because he practiced that, although thousands and thousands, using our term dollars, went through his fingers in the years that he lived. Gain all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Years ago, when we had the MCS course, One of the verses of Scripture that was a part of that course is Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion that I not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I am not to be in want and steal And profane the name of my God. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Isn't that a great verse? Great passage. When we view our possessions through eternal eyes. We see them far differently than when we look at them with worldly eyes. When we look at the humans. And human relationships through eternal eyes. We have a far different perspective from those who view humanity through worldly eyes. For one thing, we see every being as a person of worth. Looking at it with worldly eyes, we have a hierarchy of importance and value. But in eternal eyes, everyone is a person of worth. 1952, I believe it was. I was took the train from Muskogee, Oklahoma. I was going back east. I was working the railroad at the time, so traveling on a railroad pass. We stopped. I remember I got off the train. St. Louis had to catch another train. Had several hours in between connections, and so began to walk the neighborhood around the passenger depot in St. Louis, and I saw World being from Muskogee, Oklahoma, I'd never seen before. I went into an area in which almost every person I saw was a young man intoxicated. There was one young man in the street by the curb. He had vomited, threw up. He's wallowing in his vomit and trying to pull himself up out of it. Another young man immediately walked toward me, just vacant-eyed, his britches torn. Today, by the way, his britches would be worth a lot of money, you know, because holes in pants now make them valuable. Not true back then. I looked around and saw this scene, and I thought, there, but for the grace of God, go I. I thank God I came from a background that pointed me in a different direction than that. But as I looked at these desperate creatures, they all are made in the image of God regardless of how marred that image has been through the horror that they have known in life. Every person is a person of worth. There are some people in this life who in every situation they get into, they'll always be a winner. And there are others in this life who will never be a winner. But in God's eyes, they are of equal value. Looking through humans, through the eyes of eternity, we see the value of all who are made in the image of God. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Remember, consider your calling, brethren. Not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, <laughs> but all precious in the minds of God. When we look at the world through worldly lens, we have all kinds of things that rise up in us. You know, He can't do that. To vengeance. Through <laughs> eternalized vengeance is mine, I'll repay, saith the Lord. So what? So what? Respect. How many people just get so upset because they don't get respect? Let me tell you about a scene in my life which I thank God happened after he had began teaching me. And by the way, this is not something that one comes by naturally. The Holy Spirit empowers you to see the world through the lens of eternity. I'd spent... My life up to that point in the restoration movement. I had begun writing articles for the Christian Standard, which is a paper put out weekly that goes all over the United States. I wrote articles in the annual. Standard Publishing Company, Teacher's Commentary. I spoke in Bible colleges. I was on the advisory board of One Bible College. One Bible College approached me about becoming president. For years I had been involved in church camp and actually ran church camp for several years. I was a part of a team that had planted 13 churches in northeastern Oklahoma, what I'm saying is I was deeply embedded in that movement and it invested much of my life. But there were people at Bel Air Christian Church who began to attend certain seminars and lessons and came back with teachings about the Holy Spirit And I felt I had, therefore, to investigate this matter. Now, the movement of which I was a part was cessationist. And as I began to exegete the word, I came to realize I no longer with integrity could hold the view I had presented all of my life. And I began to speak to some of the other preachers and others of which I was involved. And because... I no longer held their view of the Holy Spirit. I became a pariah. I was barred from the campgrounds. And I said, well, you know, the kids from our church want to go to camp. and They can't go to camp because the rules are in order to go to camp, the preacher has to work in camp. Would you let me work in the kitchen? And so they let me work in the kitchen. And I washed dishes and mopped floors so the kids could go to camp. All kinds of false stories were told about me, newspapers, things that were not true. The minister of the largest church in Tulsa called me one day and said, Jim, I always considered you the leading intellectual among us. And if anybody would ever oppose this, you would. Now, I didn't say it to him, but I thought, I've never considered myself an intellectual. But If that's what you respect, why don't you listen to me? <laughs> I thought it. I didn't say it. <laughs> now, had I viewed that through worldly eyes, I would have been devastated because I lost all respect among those people with whom I'd spent my life. But as I looked at it, the eternal ends so what so what <laughs> because I answer there's only one voice I ever want to hear well done good and faithful servant and that's the one whose voice will say that if I continue to view things through the eternal lens. oh as humans we want respect why the only place we really need respect is from that throne of heaven. Well done, good and faithful slave. Sometimes we hear women griping, oh, my husband doesn't meet my needs. Some husband griping, my wife doesn't meet my needs. I don't get any respect. <clears throat> Looking at that, through eternal windlands, so what. (laughs) It's just a part of the mountain you have to climb before you get to the destination. She'll shape up after a while. (laughs) We could continue on and on, couldn't we, (laughs) today, (laughs) talking about these things. But the point we want to make to this is let's ask God, and that's where it has to come from, Let's ask God to do that inner transformation that enables us to begin, not begin, but continue to see life through the lens of eternity rather than through the eyes of the world that sees everything in this life as its utmost importance. We live to glorify God. Our destination is in his presence. May God be praised.